Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, I do commend those of you who are here presently, and uh, for those of you who are not, we understand the various reasons for that. Um, I have just one or two quick announcements I need to make. Um, One is that our annual business meeting is going to be held on February 21st, that's a Sunday, um, where it's going to be the pandemic version, and so we're going to be uh, having that business meeting immediately following the second service. Um, So if you're interested in that, be aware of it. Um, if you missed it earlier and just tuned in recently on the live stream, we are going to be having communion today, so be aware of that. Uh, and then starting not next week, but the week after, we are going to begin to provide uh, children's ministries in the first service. And, uh, yeah, for those of you who want to be involved that, that's great. So, uh, in fact, some of you who um, may be coming to second, we are starting to max out the second service a bit. So you might want to consider that uh, as far as first services in, involved and recorded. So keep that in mind. Um, we are in a series entitled No Other. And we discussed No Other Cross. And it has to do with our allegiances. Uh, no Other Gods, which has to do with our causes and how we can all be involved in good causes. But when those good causes begin to have uh, our identity at hand and, and what involves and wraps us up. And today I want to talk to you in regards to no other name. And before we do that, I'm going to ask if we could join in prayer. So Father, we come before you today and I thank you, Lord, for having those that gathered here, that they were able to come without injury and that you'd uh, protect them as well while going home. I thank you, Lord, for uh, tithes and offerings, whether those are live streamed or offered here today in person. I thank you, Lord, for the blessings and the provisioning that those things represent, that generous of heart, that thanksgiving of you and to you. And so, God, we honor you in that way. And I just ask, Lord, today that you would open your word to us, open your truth to us, and that it would move past our defenses, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. The glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, just a clue, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Um, There's no shame in that process. But if it's not for that, I had said last week that it was safe to come back this week. I said that. I did not promise that. Um, I did say that. And so I'm going to try to be uh, thoughtful today as we walk through this. 
there's a point in time when Jesus is talking to um, the church of that time and the political leaders and the Pharisees. And he says to them in Matthew 23, verse 30, you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And he says, nah, not true. You're saying today we would recognize these people as prophets. Our spirituality would rise up in such a way we would honor them. They, we would not kill them. And he says, that's not true. You would still. In the Old Testament, there were false prophets that rose up at different times. And they would be in the court of the king. And when the king would ask for, you know, a revelation or a word, especially on an endeavor, like a military endeavor, these false prophets would rise up and say, you know what? God's behind you. You're the man. Go with his blessings. But they were false. There were prophets of God that would be in those moments of time. And they would say, no, what you're doing is not right. Your heart's not right. Your attitude's not right. You're going to fail on this. Which of those two do you think the king liked to hear most? Okay, definitely the first, not the latter. In fact, there's one situation in the Old Testament where um, two kings are going to go to war together against another king, and they ask for like a reading of things, and the false prophets say, yeah, it's all good. And, and, and one of the kings says, ah, you know, is there anybody else that prophesies? And the king of Israel says, yeah, there's one other guy, but I don't like him. He never prophesies anything good. <laughs> and sure enough, they bring that guy in, and he says, yeah, you're going to die. <laughs> it's not going to work. Now, I looked at that and, and always have viewed that as, and I think correctly so, that it was because of their spiritual condition, that, that there was a level of conviction, and they rejected that from a spiritual viewpoint. And I think that's true. I realize, though, there's a secondary aspect to it. In each of these cases, it was challenging their sense of national identity or purpose, saying they weren't going to succeed, or that as a nation they were not um, of a certain type or things like this. And so it wasn't just a spiritual rejection. It was a rejection um, out of their national pride and identity as well, too. Now, when Jesus comes, the people of that time... We're expecting, and we've said this before many, many times, it should not be controversial, and, and only would be now because of context, perhaps. They expected a military leader. They expected somebody who was going to rise Israel up, throw off the bondage. They'd seen corruption in the nation. They'd seen um, the failings of things. They saw moral decay. They saw all these things, politically, morally, every way. And so they were looking and expected someone who was going to immediately dispense that and, and wipe all that out. Instead, they get Jesus, okay? And Jesus, as we've said before many, many times, did not live up to their expectations. Philippians gives us a little bit of a snapshot. They had this expectation, and instead they get Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, is how we're supposed to relate to each other. But this was being Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. And this is the part that the, the others had a problem with. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so he doesn't do what they want him to do. He, 
he challenges them. That's why he's saying to them, you don't even understand what I'm doing here right now. But if you'd been back in the time of your forefathers, you'd have killed the same prophets. Out of your spiritual pride, out of your national pride, out of whatever the reasons would have been in that process. Instead, Jesus is coming to try to cut across all national boundaries, all ethnicities, all social structure. He, he says in John 18, chapter 36, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The kingdom of God is something that cuts across all these different boundaries that can bind us together regardless of our differences. Philippians chapter 3, Paul gets it. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus. That our citizenship is supposed to be there. Our identity, our our allegiance is supposed to be there. We, We still practice what we practice here, but Somebody quoted recently said, if, if, if certain recent events have unsettled you, you, feel, you may feel like you don't belong in this world. And they're a Christian, so they went on to say, but if you're a Christian, then you know that you were never meant to belong or get along in this world. This is not new. None of this is new stuff. You see it both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it is, in fact, um, how we become Christians, is this whole concept of a dependency upon God, of this new kingdom that unites all mankind, that heals the damage of the land. The people of Jesus' time would have known this. They would have read Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save, and yet they continue to look for this prince, this savior, to come and save them. I saw a sign uh, that's been around for a while on a yard and it names a specific politician and says, this politician will save the world. I don't know if they're joking or not. I'm assuming they're serious. Um, there's no politician that will save this world. Not left, not right, not past, not present, not future. There is no prince of this world that will save this world or save us. Yeah, that's an appropriate amen point if you're a Christian. Amen. Oh, we got two Christians in the gang. All right, that's good. Not judging. They would have read Psalm 118 that says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. These guys who were challenging Jesus and who said, oh, we wouldn't have put to death the prophets, would have read Isaiah 2.22. Don't put your trust in mere humans. They are as frail as breath. What good are they? Don't put your trust in a community organizer and a politician and a celebrity and an activist and a pastor. Our trust is supposed to be in Christ. Our allegiance is supposed to be in Christ. We can be involved in all sorts of good causes, all sorts of, of, of redemptive elements, whether that's uh, racial healing or, or, or fighting for the, for the unborn or any of these issues, but the moment that overtakes and that becomes our identity... The moment we lift up those individuals as the heroes that we follow and who we name, Old Testament, New Testament, there was something different that was to cut across these lines. And I'm, I'm not naive. I'm aware that there are those who think the previous comments, uh, as well as this, has been a political statement. Uh, I understand how they can be perceived. That's why I've been very cautious in this. But it is not, nor has it never been. It has nothing to do with left or right. 
Instead, what this has been is an attempt to define for us what it means to be the church with no other cross, with no other gods or causes. We should be engaged politically. We should be engaged in good causes. But we should do those in a uniquely Christian fashion where our identity is not wedded into that. And that's how we arrive here at 1 Peter 4. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed. The glorious spirit of God rests upon you, but if you suffer, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, one of the translations says meddling, or prying into other people's affairs. But it's no shame to suffer for Christ. We should take stands. There are certain things we should stand for. There are certain things that are happening within our nation that we should stand against. But we need to do this humbly, and we need to do this as Christ, not arrogantly and not self-righteously. We must always remember in the midst of whatever we are doing, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 10, for it is by grace that you and I have been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves or from our affiliations or our other identifications or anything we've done or striven for or because we struck this blow or took this stand that somehow God approves of us now. It is by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. God's Holy Spirit has sought us out. We didn't do anything. He sought us out. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good things, but from the centeredness of Christ, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Acts chapter 4, there's this, the whole thing of Acts. Christ comes, dies for our sins, is resurrected, has a conversation with people for a little bit of time. He heads off, and now we're the church. We're the ones that are supposed to embody Christ in this world. Acts chapter 2, they're in prayer, and the and, uh, Holy Spirit comes upon them, and uh, um, Peter begins to speak, this uneducated fisherman, and 3,000 people come to be saved that day. And let's stop for a second there on the Holy Spirit aspect. You know, uh, Jake referenced something briefly here. I think there is something about the gathering of the Holy Spirit. There is something that... Um, affects and changes us. And I think there is something about gathering together, and I commend those of you that have been able to, and I understand, and, and, and I don't want to trip out anybody who's not able to. If it's out of fear, you need to think about that, but I, I, I trust there's reasons for it. But there's something when we gather that we can have a sensing of, of the Holy Spirit that operates in such a way that I don't think it's the same as when we are... Um, separated from this conversation. Can the, can the Holy Spirit activate in your living room right now? Yes, I believe that to be the case. I think if your heart's particularly receptive. But there's something about gathering together as the church. And so this has broken out in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people are saved. Acts chapter 4 finds um, Peter and John going up to the temple, and they see this guy, and uh, he's crippled. They heal him in Jesus' name. 
and everyone's freaking out over it. And uh, the local authorities pull them in because um, they give a little speech about Jesus again, and 2,000 more people are added to the church. Okay, so in the space of just a few days, 5,000 people, you know, are added to the church. And so the, the, the politicians, the leaders, the uh, Pharisees, they're all upset. They pull them in and say, look at, um, you can't be doing this. This is wrong. And so they begin to preach to them and highlight the fact even that you killed Jesus. And then they say this in verse 12 of chapter 4 of Acts, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which they must be saved. They say this to them. There's no other name. This is when they saw the courage of Peter and John, realized that they were unschooled ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They took note. They'd been with Jesus. And they're hearing these words. But they're still concerned about the crowds and their positions and everything else, so they instruct them, don't speak about this anymore. Don't talk about this anymore. And it's in this context that we find verse 19, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And so he says, look, we have to obey God's law, not uh, man's law. And there are situations where, yes, if we are required or asked to do something that's against God's law, and increasingly that gets to give you a pressure point, yes, but we don't do that with arrogance. In fact, they were respectful to the authorities involved. But this specific situation has to do with the witness of Jesus Christ, has to do with talking about who Jesus is. And it's that that they said, we can't stop doing that. This was what they were identified with. This is what they were known for. This is what it was understood who they were, were people who were so enraptured with the person of Jesus Christ, they could not stop talking about him. They were identified as Christians, not one thing or another thing or all these different stances or positions that can be taken, but as Christians because this is what they're identified. They're imprisoned. They're beaten. But their reason for doing so was not because of the harshness of positions that they took. It was because they were proclaiming Jesus Christ as the only one can save, and that was what they were known for. If you have resolved in your mind, in this gathering today, or wherever you're listening to on this, that, that Jesus Christ is the only way, then I ask yourself, is that your primary focus? Is that what you are known for? In a conversation I had recently with someone close to me, there was a discussion of what the church is, and this person was suggesting different things, just we were discussing things. You know, the church is really, really it's a therapeutic element it could be. You know, we come together to feel better about ourselves and feel better about life and to, 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 to get our mental health checked and some therapeutic elements. Or maybe it's more of an educational issue. We, we come together and we learn history and, and we, we get educated and, and so we know more. Those of us who are Christians, wherever you're at in this, we became Christians because God chose us. We had an awareness of the depth of our sin. We realize somewhere in the walking that we are flawed, that we are the sinful, that we are the broken, that we're redeemed by grace, humbled by love. That's who we are. We had an encounter somewhere with God's Holy Spirit that penetrated through the darkness of our thinking, through all the other allegiances and, and symbols that crowd our life, and brought us to a point of realization and, and restoration. Now, from that moment, now we are in the process of constantly being transformed. 
And in there could be a therapeutic element in the sense that we can encourage one another. We can be lifted up and strengthened. There's an educational aspect, absolutely. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't start that work and continue that work, it, it's, it's, it's nothing. It means nothing. If you're here or listening in and, and your identity, your central cause is the cross of Christ, then there should be something working within you and me. And when we engage others, it should influence how we do that. I know that, that you have not picked this up, but I can be a very intense person. From some of your response, I gather you realize that. I am a passionate person. I am by nature a warrior. I love to engage in debate and, and the struggle of things, and I love to conquer and destroy. That is my nature. Not so much the destruction part, but I love the win and the conquer, and I like getting in those kind of conversations. When I get into an argument, a discussion, I'll bring everything to bear to, to overcome that positioning. And I can be powerful, and I can be intimidating, and I can kill people. And I have to correct that at times, because that, in its extreme version, is not the nature of Christ. It is my nature. I might even be able to justify it at times for a good cause, and God may be able to even to occasionally use it for a good cause. But if I don't submit that nature to Christ... I can kill people with it. Do you understand what I'm saying with this? Because all of us have our own giftings and abilities. All of us have certain aspects of our nature that if they are not submitted to Christ, if we don't let the Holy Spirit transform us and then continue to educate us, then people know us and they condemn and persecute us, but not for the cause of Christ but because we're being idiots. I want to offer you a couple thoughts here. One, Lewis, C.S. Lewis mentioned that he was the one who pursued myths and all these different things, and he realized at one point in time that all these myths, all these stories that move us, they move us, he believed, because there was something eternal that was somehow creeping into each of these things, and that's why they moved us, and that eventually led him to Christ. In um, Charles Dickens's Scrooge, one of the parts that uh, has always stood out to me, and we see it every year as a, as a family. I think this last year, I think we still watched on, on, on video, I think if we did a different version of it, if I'm, if I'm right, yeah. Scrooge, you all know who Scrooge is. He's a skinflint. He won't spend a dime. He just doesn't have Christmas. He's a, he's a basic stand-in for a non-Christian, <laughs> if you will. At one point in time, somebody comes along and tries to get a collection from him for the poor and for those that are in need. And he makes it, aren't there any poor houses? Aren't there any uh, uh, um, workplaces for them? And, and, and all like that, and, and shoves them away. He has a transformational experience with these three spirits. Let's just trim it down to one. Let's say he has a Holy Spirit experience. Now, it's about Christmas. He comes out, and now he can celebrate Christmas. But it, what it's really a metaphor for Dickens was a transformation of life, a salvation moment. And so he comes to a complete different view of how he's encountering mankind now. 
And at one point in the story in the play, after he's had this revelation, this transformation, he's now trying to live it out better. He's giving a turkey off to a family here. He's doing different things. He's walking along, and he sees this man who had come in to solicit him. And it sends a pang across his heart, it says, to think how this old gentleman will look upon him when they met. But he knew what path lay straight before him, and he took it. And so he approaches the guy. He says, my dear sir, said Scrooge, quickening his pace and taking the old gentleman by both hands. How do you do? I hope you succeeded yesterday in collecting all the money for these poor people. It was very kind of you. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. And the guy says, Mr. Scrooge? Mr. Scrooge, there's a question mark. And this line... Yes, said Scrooge, that is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. That is my name, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Allow me to ask your pardon, and will you have the goodness? And he whispers in his ear a figure that he's going to give, and the guy's blown away by the figure. And he says, not one farthing less. A great many back payments are included in it. I assure you, will you do me the favor? Yes, that's my name, and I, I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Yes, I'm a Christian, and I fear it may not be pleasant to you. Not because of unpopular stances I've taken, but because I'm such an angry, ornery, violent person in how I approach it. I'm so ungraceful, so uh, uh, disrespectful in the approach, I fear it not be. Is there a point of repentance in us where we come back and say, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be that way. If we are going to be taken as persecution then let it be because we instead were standing properly for Christ. That there was no other cross, that there was no other saying, that there was no other cause, no other position, no other identity that I had but that of Jesus. Final thing. I was talking with some friends again the other day. I have friends and I do talk to them. Sometimes they talk back when they get a word in edgewise, sometimes they don't. And I was saying to someone the other day, I said, I, I'm so much in despair at times for our nation. We have positions and laws that have been enacted and taken that, to be honest, by history I know will never be repealed. They never will. And as I've examined in history, hundreds of cultures over thousands of years of time, I look and I feel like there is an endpoint to our culture that we are moving towards, whether that's 10 years or 50 years, whatever it is, but there's an inevitable trend. And I said, I feel like Dr. Strange. And some of us say, well, you got the last word right at least. <laughs> I feel like Doctor Strange in, in Endgame where he, and in the Avengers where in a time of stress he, he's able to go through all of time and space and configure all the different possibilities and how they will win or lose against their enemy and their foe. And I say, I feel like him except that I don't see one. I don't see one. I don't see anyone. And then I stopped and I said, wait a minute. Actually, I do. And let me play this out for you a bit. In the Avengers Endgame, it's an epic war that comes down to a single sacrifice 50% of the people have been wiped away by the enemy. And this epic war comes down to this single sacrifice as Tony Stark gets hold of the device that's necessary through a personal sacrifice. He's going to die, but with a snap of his fingers, he's able to restore what was lost 
and destroy the enemy. With a snap of his fingers, he destroys the enemy and restores what is lost. But there's a sacrifice in the process, and it's his life. Lewis said that myths are more than that because there's a certain truth at the core. Any of the stories that resonate, we look at that story, and the reason why it resonates with us is because there's a core of element of truth, not with Tony Stark, not with the Avengers, not with the Marvel Universe, none of that. But somewhere down deep within our spirit, we recognize that there has been an epic war across space and time, far more epic than can ever be defined in that cinema. That there has been something taken from mankind. That someone came in the person of Jesus Christ who with his death, the snap of his fingers, he destroys the enemy and he restored what was lost. There's something in that that chills us as we recognize that we are the flawed, we are the sinful, we are the broken, but we are redeemed by grace, humbled by love. That the Holy Spirit has somehow witnessed into us that the realization that, that all the laws and all the world and all the politicians and all the planet can work whatever they want to do, but they can't change the heart of man. How many times have I said it? The little boy that's standing up and the mom says, sit down, I will not sit down. Sit down right now, I will not sit down. Sit down right now, man, or I will not sit down. She goes over and sits him down. She says, you're sitting down now. Yes, but I'm still standing on the inside. We can put whatever laws we want, and we should. But if we think that's going to redeem mankind, it will not change the heart of man. It will not change your heart or my heart. There's only one person that can do that. And in Acts chapter 4, they pronounced it in the midst of everything that was going on at that time period. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given to mankind, by which we must be saved. If we have been known more for our causes, more for the battles that we fight, then we are known for being followers of Christ then we're being persecuted for the wrong reason. But if we take stands, if we take positions, if we do it not only for the cause of Christ, but we do it in the ways and methods of Christ, which often means sacrifice and martyrdom, if we're willing to not let our politics, our nationality, our ethnicity, our social status, any of those come in the way, if we can recognize that we are the flawed, the sinful, the broken, if our nation, if our people can understand that we are the flawed, the sinful, the broken, then we can be redeemed by grace and humbled by love. And that's why I feel a little bit like Dr. Strange in the moment, having gone through all the permutations of all the cultures and all the history and all the time period, and looking and saying there's no way, given all that track record, that our nation has anything but a downward trend. And then I stop for a moment, and I look at these scriptures, and I remember the God, what God says, and I come back and say, but there is one. There is one. If there is a spiritual revival in this country... There is one chance, one chance, and it is found in the person and in the work 
of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian and have failed to have that to be your central identity, then I challenge you today. Why would you disagree about the cross? Why would you disagree of having no other gods? Why could you possibly disagree by saying there's no other name? And I call you back to that moment of purity. And if you are not a follower of Christ, then I tell you there is no other hope there is no other name. There is no other way that you are going to make it. And I say that not in a deadly fashion, but in a call to you to realize your brokenness, realize your flaws, realize your sinfulness. Accept that Jesus Christ paid that price. Surrender your soul to him. Let the Holy Spirit even now work within you and begin the process of transformation. And so we could gather together in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, knowing everything and seeing everything else around us and knowing everything that's taking place and our own weaknesses and insecurities and, and infirmities, and we can still say, therefore, we do not lose heart. With everything we see, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. He's being a little facetious there are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on princes, not on pastors, not on politicians or celebrities, not on ourselves. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen seen is eternal. We fix our eyes on Christ. In a moment of time, we're going to take communion. We're going to take part of something that has cut across all nations, across millennia of time. It represents the sacrifice of Christ. Ours is an open communion. You don't have to be a member, but you do have to be a follower of Christ. If you haven't made that commitment, I offer you now, be aware of your sin. Repent of that. Offer that to Christ and join us. We'll take it in a moment of time and we'll, we'll take it together. As we approach that, I want to encourage you to consider how we have been living out this life. Have we not taken the stands that we should have? Have we taken stands that we shouldn't have taken? Have we done it in a way that has not honored Christ's name? Are we doing those things that lift up the name of Christ? And so, Father, we come before you this morning. And, Lord, we submit ourselves, our gifts, our talents, all our strengths, all our weaknesses. And, Lord, as we prepare for this time of communion in the turmoil of the world that swirls around us, we fix our eyes on you in the same way that our brothers did in the fourth chapter of Acts. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us even in this moment of reflectivity, I pray. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you're going to be blessed. There will be struggles and trials, and you're going to get picked on for those issues. And if it's for a right cause, though, you're going to be blessed. God's Holy Spirit rests upon you. If we suffer, however, 
It must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, meddling, prying in other people's affairs, handling things in a way that is not Christ-like. But it's no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Let's suffer for the right reasons. Let the name of Christ be lifted up and recognized for good things and not for bad. Let's stand for the cross of Christ. Let's, let's be clear that there are no other gods, no other causes, and there's no other name that we identify with. This concludes this series. Next week we'll be doing something new and something different. Because we're in the environment that we're in, uh, we're not always able to handle things the way we would like to. And so a little out of our norm here, but uh, we have one of our families who is moving to Dallas. And um, they leave, I think, tomorrow, if I'm right. So we're, this week at least or so, coming soon. So I'm going to ask if Rashad and Jackie, Harvey, and I'm assuming Zoe, is she in the building somewhere? Yeah, Zoe, the little one. You can stand and fan, just stand here and face the congregation for a moment. Normally, we'd have a whole bunch of people gathered around you and lay hands on you. Nowadays, that would be more of a uh, yeah. So, if there's those of you who want to just extend your hand out to them, we're just going to pray blessing on them. They've been Jackie's been here since she was nine years old, I think, or so. And um, so, there's a history here. So, Father, right now we we pray blessing upon Rashad as the head of this household as the man after your own heart that is leading his family. And we pray your blessing upon him. We pray your encouragement upon Jackie as his helpmate and upon little Zoe. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless and minister to them in um, that southern land of Dallas. And that in that place, they would be a witness that would draw many of those unrighteous Texans to you, Lord. Strengthen them. We pray blessing materially, spiritually. We pray your protection upon them physically. And Lord, as we leave here this day as a congregation, God, continue to guide us and direct us as your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.